I assume everybody has read the book and we will have Brad play the material I prepared. I know you got the email that Alan sent out. I'm sorry, Lisa C. was unable to make it tonight. She said her husband was celebrating a birthday. I think she would have come. She and I have emailed a few times. I don't say we're besties or anything, but we have emailed some, and she did seem regretful that she was unable to make it. So That's I'll go nice. ahead. I'll mm-hmm. go ahead and let Brad play the the um the information that I retrieved from a podcast with her. She's a delightful interview, from what I could tell. All right, here we go. I'm going to mute everybody. And Whoop. what is it? About a 25 minute recording. So yeah, roughly. Yeah. Nice. Buckle up and enjoy. Here we go. Welcome to Journey Through History for Tuesday, December 5th, 2023, where we are discussing the novel Lady Tan's Circle of Women by Lisa C., Welcome to Book Reporter Talks To, a podcast from the Book Report Network, where we host in-depth conversations with authors about the books that we love. Welcome to our latest Book Reporter Talks To interview, where our guest today is my very good friend, Lisa C., and we're going to be talking about Lady Tan's Circle of Women, her 10th novel. Here's what our reviewer had to say about it. Lisa C. never disappoints, and the footsteps of her other great novels Lady Tan's Circle of Women is a dazzling mix of historical research, fleshed out female friendships, realistic portrayals of familial bonds, and the ultimate heroine story. An individual struggle to become what they were intended for. Rich in tradition and the nuances of ancient medicine, Lady Tan's Circle of Women is a tribute to women supporting women and following one's own heart. So with that, welcome Lisa. Thank you. That was so lovely to hear. You have a wonderful story about how you came to discover Lady Tan. Can you share that with us? I do think about books for a really long time before I decide this is the one. You know, with um, Island of Sea Women, it was about eight years. With Tigril of Hummingbird Lane, it was 20. I thought I knew what the next book was going to be. I was quietly doing research, gathering material, and then the pandemic hit. And the thing about that particular project was it was going to require a trip deep, deep, deep into the interior of China. And obviously, I could not go in 2020, 2021, 2022. Even now, I would be pretty hesitant about going somewhere so truly, truly remote. And there we were, you know, in the pandemic. And I... I was at home. You know, I can't go to China to do research. I can't go to a library or an archive. Everything was closed. Months went by. And there was a day when I was just walking by the bookshelves in my office. And I know you have a ton of books. <laughs> I also have just a ton of books. And, and this one wall is just all my research books. And I don't know why, but the spine of one of them kind of popped out at me light gray with darker gray lettering. Why? I don't know, but I pulled it down. Pregnancy and childbirth in the Ming Dynasty. And I looked, I had that book on my shelf for 10 years and had never opened it. Here we are in a pandemic. I have nothing to do. My life is over. Might as well start reading it now. And I did. And I got to page 19 when there was a mention of Tan Yanshan, woman doctor in the Ming Dynasty, who when she turned 50 in 1511, published a book of her cases. And I put the book down. I went to the internet to look her up. And it turned out that her book was in print, not just in Chinese, but it was available in English. And I ordered it right then, got it the next day. And so instead of thinking about this book for 5, 10, 20 years, it was all of about 26 hours. And you need to reach out. And I know the end of your book has so many resources you went to. How did you end up doing those during COVID days? I think this is where a little bit of luck, serendipity came into it. I just started reaching out to people. The first person I looked for was the person who had translated the original book into English. Out of all the places she could live in the world, she lived about 10 minutes from me. We would meet on Zoom and she 
introduced me to many scholars. She would you know, send me an email and say, oh, you've got to watch this lecture that's going to happen in Singapore tonight. And I you know, would watch it because it would pertain to the subjects that I was writing about. But I also just reached out to other scholars and professors literally around the world. What's interesting is I, I think they may have been a little bit in the same boat that I was in, you know, isolated, didn't have anyone to talk to. And so when I came along and, and, you know, would write and say, can you tell me something about how mail worked in the Ming Dynasty? Or how did you mail a letter in the Ming Dynasty? Or uh, how long did it take to travel on the Grand Canal from Wuxi to Beijing? So what made her decide to translate this book into English. She does translate a lot of Chinese medical texts into English so that they can be used mostly in um, traditional Chinese medicine colleges. Scholars, they really deal purely in facts, you know, and what, what has the research shown? And I would ask questions like, how do you think Han Yanshan met the tile maker. So one of so most of her cases are the women and girls in the family compound that she lives where she lives with her husband and you know his hundred of his relatives plus their servants. So you know these are elite women and girls plus the people who take care of them. But there are some other cases in there that are just you know like how did she meet these people? The woman who holds a tiller on a ship, another woman who's a brick and tile maker. And nobody really knows how she met these other people. You also wrote the book in the first person. Was that something you were going to know you were going to do right from the beginning? I think almost all of my, except for the mysteries, all of my novels have been written in the first person. I've been told by various editors that this is really the most difficult um, form to write to be in the first person, but to me, it feels the most natural. And it's a way for me to really be in my character's clothes, you know, to really be living her story with her. That really allowed me to follow her through a day, for example. So, you know, the part three. Yeah. So part, yeah. Part three starts with that whole, it's a long chapter. Uh, just following her from the moment she gets up until the end of the day and all of the things she has to do, but also how she does it. Uh, to me, it reminds me a little bit of like the Laurel Ingalls Wilder stories, right? That you're, you're sort of in it and you learn how to churn butter and, and you learn, <laughs> how they, you know, how they just dealt with pioneer life. Are you researching as you're going along as well? Like if you get to a section and you have to write about what her makeup is like or whatever. Do you write XXX and keep on going? Or do you stop and do the research at that point? Or do you know where you're going before you get to a chapter? Well, when I start writing, I think I've gathered everything. Okay. But I definitely haven't. <laughs> you know, so then when I hit yeah, those spots... I, I well, I can't. There's nobody to talk to. I love the titles of the four right now. It's a 25 minute recording. Days, hair pinning days, rice and salt days, and sitting quiet. I was just interested in writing, what. Did you see a natural way this to break book club, story like this? These how they dealt with it and all of that. That's what well, I'm interested I, I, in. Yes, I mean, it, and I'm finding I out those that they thought they were going to, to interview the author, but she couldn't. It was said about her the after that book was her original so. book was published when she was fifty one that her cures became even more magical that her abilities at diagnosis were were like um, you know the great medical masters who could look at someone and actually see through their body to bodies to see what was wrong. And she lived till how old? How many years old was she? Ninety six. Of course, um, I think one of her grand, great nephews in one of the afterwards says, you know, and that may show that she was a pretty good doctor. For, um, no, no mud, no lotus. The idea that it really is through adversity that wonderful things can happen. And even though you may not realize, I mean, I think everybody watching this uh, has gone, had this experience where you're going through something really tough, really hard sometimes tragic, but that out of that, 
you know, in the moment you're, you're just like in it, you're in that mud, but that later you don't even know what's going to happen and how that's all going to change. And, and actually often the very positive things that come out of adversity. Yeah. Well, like the pandemic and finding all these people that wanted to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> Tan loses her mother very early in the book. And I kept thinking about how different it would have been if her mother had lived longer and she would have been in a very different um, class of what she was supposed to do because she would have been in the home in a very different way or sent off to marry in a different way. So can we talk about that a little bit? Because her mother was very different from the person she became. Yes, her mother is just a very traditional wife of that time and very concerned with all the rules for women. And, the, you know, the opening scene is she's just drilling her daughter to, you know, with all of these rules that should be memorized of what's appropriate for a girl, what's appropriate for a woman, what's appropriate for a mother. And it doesn't give too much away to say that, you know, respectful lady dies by the end of chapter one. And, and as a result, she's sent off to live with her grandparents. Mm -hmm. And her father, you know, goes off to be an imperial scholar. So she doesn't, you know, she's not going to see him for years and years and years. So in a way, she's, she's orphaned. But to me, so much of the story is really about how she, even without realizing it, how she's slowly creating a circle of women. Mm -hmm. She leaves with her servant girl, Poppy, who mm -hmm. sleeps at the foot of her bed, but she realizes one day she doesn't know anything about Poppy. Like Poppy is just this, this thing almost to her, like a, 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 like a tool to get mm -hmm. her through her day. And one day she wakes up and like, I don't even know anything about this woman who sleeps at my bedside or my bed foot every single evening. And right. like, I rely on Poppy for this. I rely on her for that. Poppy doesn't have bound feet. Poppy is this. And I just found it was so interesting because all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm with these women. It's the beginning of a circle in some ways because it's beginning, but it's with, you know, your, your father's mistress and your servant. And that's who you're checking off with. We have to talk about the marriage bed. Yeah. So again, you know, I could, there were a lot of things, places I couldn't go and a lot of things I couldn't do, but I have been writing about China for a very long time. And so I've been to China many times and I felt very comfortable about writing about Wuxi. I've been in many, many Chinese gardens, many traditional Chinese houses, but this, I think, may be the first time in one of my books that there was actual, an actual physical object, and that one is the marriage bed. So my family has been in the Chinese antiques business for you know well over 100 years. My great-great-grandfather uh, started the business. My great-grandfather continued it and, it, and it's still in existence today. This marriage bed, it's been in the family, I mean, in the family store for as long as I can remember, but I would say for well over a hundred years. And so it's, it, so if you can think of a, a Chinese, a big, you know, a mansion um, where you have these really big rooms, mm -hmm. but no real sense of privacy, you know, again, you have servants and all these people. And so they would build these marriage beds that were almost like a room within a room. You could take them apart, you know, put, fold them up, move them. But this one, um, it elaborately carved, uh, you for, it has a big um, wooden canopy and carved wooden tassels that hang down. You step into the first room and this is where the servant would sleep. Um, and then the next room was a dressing room. And finally through a moon gate, carved moon gate into the sleeping platform. And this particular one, on all sides of the sleeping platform were paintings on silk that depicted, oh, you know, like romantic married life, uh, a couple sitting, you know, walking by the stream, or she's playing an instrument and he's writing poetry. This was like my playhouse when I was a little girl. My cousins, my little boys played in there. You know, when I have lots of grandchildren, I hope they get to play in there too and so it was really a magical place for me as a child and still is but I, I when I thought about this time period in the Ming dynasty and how how again how separated from the world women were okay. and this was 
you know, respectful lady's bed. It's where she dies. And then when Tan Yanshan is, you know, moves to her grandparents' house and is shown into her new room, that bed has been reconstructed for her. And there is a secret compartment. In real life, there wasn't a secret compartment. I made that up. Um, this also then becomes a playhouse, in a sense, for Tan Yanshan and her friend Mei Ling. She's also saddened when she's married out to a merchant family not an official one. So what are the differences? And again, this sort of goes back to Confucius, who set out these levels of occupation, what was esteemed and what wasn't. So like the very, very bottom, butchers, uh, coroners, midwives, people who got their hands in blood. But merchants were seen as not terribly useful to society, that they were just making money. Then at the very top, you had the imperial scholars. And these were people who study for a lifetime, you know, sometimes have to take the imperial exam over and over and over again. But if they pass, they are awarded different positions. Through. And although her husband's family is much more wealthy, they're still just merchants. His family is hoping that even though they have more money, her father can help him in yes. his studies for his exams. That there is right, a, and then if he passes, then her father will be able to help get him into a good position. And have women these days earned any more respect in China? You know, here's here's something that's. I mean, there's so many facets to that, but one is that when Mao took power in 1949, and I am never going to be an apologist for him in any way, he was responsible for millions and millions of death, deaths and you know unbelievable misery for millions of people. However, that said, he was the first person to say women hold up half the sky. And that meant that women, you know, after 1949 had to come out of seclusion and join life. And so that meant for some working in the fields, working in factories, going to school, becoming doctors, becoming dentists, and entering politics. But this desire for a son still remains. Um, this was some, you know, a side effect of the one child policy was that if you were only going to have one child, you needed to have a son. Mm -hmm. And so that did result of the 30 years that the one child policy existed, that there were a million fewer girls born each year um, through selective abortion. The most prominent of these holidays is Chinese New Year. One of the aspects of Chinese New Year is that you make offerings to your ancestors and you can also make or buy um, like a house made out of paper mache or a flat screen TV made out of paper mache. And then these things are burned and they travel to the afterworld for your ancestors. And as a thank you, they take care of you through the rest of the year. And they, they make sure you have a good job and that you're making money and if you have good health and that you fall in love. But here's the catch. Only one person can make those offerings, and that's the eldest son. A doctor like Tanya and Shen, monetary rewards were not really in, in her future, especially because her patients were mostly the women and girls in her household. But also for just doctors in general, that this was not a big money-making proposition. But a, mid, a midwife in the right place at the right time with the right family with a successful birth could be rewarded with land, money, even a title. Even though kind of dirty and messy and icky and at the bottom of society, they actually had this opportunity to really be elevated mm -hmm. um, through monetary gain. I found a book called The Washing Away of Wrongs, which is believed to be the first book of forensics written anywhere in the world. It came out in 1247 and was used in China until just a few years ago. This book is so amazing. How to tell if someone has drowned and why and was it on purpose? Did someone kill themselves by hanging or what is this some setup? And if you use this poison, what will it look like? To me, to have her book on the one hand, it's all about health and um, healing. And on the other, how you look at death, how you diagnose death and and how you also send people off and, you know, into their graves. What I have been thinking about is this question of 
who has control over women's bodies? And that this is something that she was talking about 500 years ago. She was helping women who wanted to get pregnant, who didn't want to get pregnant, wanted to end a pregnancy. There's a case, you know, case number 28, where she's helping someone who's had a botched abortion. This is not something new. There's a Catholic nun in the 1100s, Hildegard von Bingen, who also wrote a couple of books where she had outlined all of these herbs and recipes to help women, you know, get pregnant, uh, how, how to nurse, you know, how to help the milk come in, but also how to end an unwanted pregnancy. A Catholic nun. Was Lady Tan Circle of Women always the title? This was a very hard title, I think, we went through about 20 different iterations. It kept being too literal. I mean, even now in my computer, it's doctor of woman. But finally, there was, it was a point when I, I, we may have been all the way into copy editing. I mean, really far along in the process. And I was reading the manuscript for the, you know, 10,000th time. And I saw this phrase, uh, I think it's when Miss Chen, the, the, um, concubine says to this uh to poppy you know we when they move to this to the grandparents house we have to be the ones who help her we have to be a circle around her and then it turned out that that idea kept popping up in the book mm -hmm. this has happened to me many times actually where i i feel like my subconscious is working and and is telling me something you know, the book is dedicated to the memory of marina Bokelman. And who was she? So she was a friend first originally of my father. She was only 17, but she was already at UCLA. And my father was in graduate school in the anthropology department. She studied folklore. And she, over time, became one of my mother's closest friends. You know, she has been in, was in my life from the time I was five. She was a folklorist. She drove around the country in the early 1960s collecting the music of blues musicians. This was before, you know, even in England, people were rock and rollers were picking up on the blues and, and sort of resurrecting our own tradition. She was collecting all of that, and it's now at UCLA. She became a medicine woman, you know, and, and practiced throughout her entire life. She wrote to me, I guess it's about a year ago, and she was 82, and she said, you know, I, I feel like I've lived long enough, and um, I'm going to stop eating. Wow. And she did, and she died. But Do you know your next book? Are you going to go back to where you were before? Um, no, I, I actually have a different idea that I'm working on. I've done most of the research. I just haven't had a chance to, you know, sit down and really start to write it. I, I will wait until August once the tour is done. This is um, set against the backdrop of the 1871 Chinese massacre that occurred in Los Angeles. Um, Los Angeles at that time was actually the wildest of all the Wild West towns. I mean, we don't know that, but it really was. and. A tenth of the population participated in the massacre, and 10% of the Chinese were killed. So at that time, only 34 Chinese women living in Los Angeles. And I'm telling the story from the point of view of three of them. The first one is the young, very beautiful wife of an older, wealthy merchant. And she was kidnapped. And it's really her kidnapping that you know, months later is what inspires the, the riot and massacre. So I think of her as kind of like the Helen of Troy of the piece. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next one is the wife of the one Chinese doctor who actually was the most prominent doctor in Los Angeles because Chinese medicine was so much more reliable than sort of Western quackery. Yeah. So he was, he was the most popular popular doctor in Los Angeles at that time, and he was the second person killed. Um, I'm just, I have to just tell you this weird anecdote. So after everything happened, um, when they went to look at for survivors in his shop, in his place of medicine at where his wife was, they found his little white poodle who oh. had a little broken leg. 
And I can't stop thinking about that poodle. Like, how did a white poodle get to Los Angeles in 1871? It's one of those, you know, one of those questions I think I'm going to be asking scholars. You're going to be asking a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people, like, how did a white poodle get to Los Angeles in 1871? And so I'm telling that part of the story from the from the point of view of his wife, who went on to sue the city for what happened. And, you know, there are all these court records and all of the things she did. She was the first Chinese woman to file a lawsuit like that. And then the third is also based, is more a composite of two women who were um, sold by their families in China and bought, brought here, sold into prostitution. And both of these women spent their entire lives trying to escape, Ooh. doing their best to find freedom. The interview concluded with the podcast host asking Lisa C. to discuss how she chose the particular illustration for the book cover. Since this illustration was not described, I felt that it would serve no purpose to include that discussion here. I do hope, however, that you have enjoyed this interview and that you enjoyed the book, which took us to a very unique place and time. And there we go. And there oh. we are. There we are. And we will now be able to call on people to add to add their comments. I think I can do that. Alan, if you see that I need help, you certainly can jump in. In cool. fact, I'll go ahead and start with you. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't start the book on time. I'm like two hours from finishing. So I would welcome to know how the thing ends if anybody wants to share that with me. I have but, no problem uh, with, yeah, with yeah. that. Uh, the, 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 this book was very interesting. I, you know, I have a real hard time with Chinese culture because it's so different <laughs> than what I'm used to. And of course, this is set like 1400s, 1500s and stuff. So, uh, so some of the practices that they did, I, I, I have to try to keep it in perspective because I'm thinking, you know, I'm usually thinking of the Chinese as very intelligent people and stuff. I mean, all this homeopathic medicine they practice stuff like that it's like like she said in the interview uh, uh, a lot a lot more sophisticated than western quackery and stuff and uh uh but yet you know they got women biting their feet and stuff which which just makes me cringe you know to think how that ever got started but uh uh but uh i i just love some of the phraseology i mean I mean, I want to go to the Garden of Fragrant Delights and 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 visit the you know the the, the mansion of golden light and stuff. I, you know, I, I thought some of the the the, the wording was, was was very well done. And you know, I like stories about women. I know uh, we had a conversation between some of us before we got started that uh, uh, some people think you know that this is a book for women and stuff. But I mean, I I, I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I I thought a lot of the the points that were raised were very interesting, and, and the fact that. Here they were in the mid 1500s or 1400s. Women are, you know, wanting to be treated by other women doctors. I'm just, you know, I, I'm clapping for them and stuff. I, I, I'm thinking this this is great because uh, uh, the, they were obviously a, a, ahead of their time. And uh, uh, I, I thought hearing the interview was interesting. I, I never would have thought that, that that Mao would have been the champion of the Me Too movement over in China and stuff. But it sounds like he kind of got some of that stuff started. But uh uh, anyway, that, that that's enough for me. I, I I've enjoyed what I've read, but uh, I, I apologize I didn't quite get through it. So uh, anyway, we'll let's. All right, <laughs> we'll go on. Liz yeah. Lindsay is next, and if any of you want to enlighten Alan about how the novel ends, I have no problem. Um. Yeah. Okay. So this book <laughs> was um. It was very interesting. It, it at no point did I feel like stopping it, but I have to tell you, I felt very queasy during a lot of it. Um, I was very curious about the foot binding. And so I looked it up and I have enough vision to see how it horrible disfigurement it did to, to women's feet. And that that was considered a, you know, a class issue or a sign of beauty, you know, was nothing more than, than women not being able to stand on their own basically. Um, mm -hmm. 
And I thought it was very interesting, too, that men never saw the actual feet. They were always covered in these beautifully embroidered slip, you know, silk slippers. So that the men never saw the 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 extent of the disfigurement that that these women went through to be pleasing to them. Um, so you know, as a woman, I really had a hard time with it, and, and then I and I I really struggle because I know that you know when you're reading history, especially 500 years ago, you really have to not see it through your eyes today. That's, That's yeah. kind of hard to do. <laughs> Um, but I agree with Alan, the the, um, the description of the gardens and the houses and stuff were just beautiful. I mean, and I and I liked these women. I, I felt really sorry for um, some of them, of course. Um, uh, but, I, I, you know, basically, uh, I, yeah, it was it was a very interesting read. And I feel like I learned a lot about a culture that is very, very different from my own. And, mm-hmm. and I found myself being very grateful that I was not born during that time. Um, <laughs> thanks. I certainly can understand that and agree with you. Um, Jana, Jana Latrell, would you like to? Okay. Uh, I thought this book was terrific. I thought it was very interesting um the part about the foot binding can just make your stomach churn mm-hmm. i knew that that it was deforming i i knew that but i guess i didn't really understand the extent of it i didn't know about the breaking bones and the infections that it could cause and and these poor little girls were expected to be brave through all this these bones breaking and uh to me i'd say cry like a sissy but, but, um, and and that men were supposed to find this attractive. I just uh, shame on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, the medicine that was used, I thought was very interesting. Things like trying to increase or decrease the heat and cold in the blood, and doctors uh, were supposed to not not touch blood, but of course midwives could. Um, I did. I did laugh about the uh, character, um, the Chinese character of two women under one roof, which um, being the symbol for trouble. And uh, and I, and I also liked the quote: "He who depends on himself will have the greatest happiness." So um, I thought this was a very, very interesting book. I enjoyed learning about the culture, and it was a great choice. And thank you very much. Sure thing. Michelle, would you like to go? Sure. Um, I, I think everybody's making really good comments so far. Um, I This was a book that while I was reading it, I definitely had difficulty at, at, at different points in the story, but after I finished it, I was really happy that I read it because I think I, I had re- I had I'd never read Lisa C. before. And what I knew about her was that her historical detail was supposed to be very meticulous. And I really think it is. Um, I, I don't know what kind of research she does. Um, it was interesting to hear that she may have actually appeared at our group. I didn't realize that was even a possibility because she's a pretty well-known author. Um but, you know, just the stuff about the medicine was fascinating, absolutely sure. fascinating. Um, you know, even the way that the doctors would sit behind the screen and they mm. couldn't touch the patients. And, you know, it, I, I don't know. It was just interesting, all the herbs and all the, you know, like Janice said, with the heat and the cold. And, and it was it was fascinating, absolutely really, really fascinating. Um, I also thought what she did very well was show how incredibly patriarchal this society was. I mean, women basically lived inside the walls of the compound and they never left. You know, it was a big deal to go to some kind of fair or whatever they went to because they never left the compound. And I thought, oh my God, how restrictive this is that they, that they can never leave. Um, and that women were betrothed to to men, to not men, to boys, really, you know, when they were eight years old. And then when they're 15, they left their family and they went off to live with the husband's family, which, you know, is, is a big thing to do. 
uh, to have that kind of change. And and I liked her relationship with her grandparents because at least she had some connection, you know, to her to her family. Not much with her father, but at least to her grandparents. Um, the stuff with the foot binding boy that was tough <laughs> to read about. And I don't even understand how men could find this attractive to have, I guess, like a foot, like a point or something. I was trying to figure out even what the, these foot would look like. Um, it was really horrendous. Um, but I, I do think this was a great book. And um, I definitely will read more of her, her book. She's a very, very good author. So thank you for, for recommending it. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Joni, would you like to comment? Oh, I would. I loved this <laughs> book. And the thing with, um, and and I had told David that I downloaded this book and I meant to read it, and then I was so thrilled that he um, he gave us this book to read, so I already had it. And... Um, she writes a lot about foot binding in her other books, and um, I can't give you a title right now. But um, Snowflower and the that one about Snowflower and the Secret Fan, maybe. Right. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Or Peony and mm -hmm. Love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there were some husbands that thought the foot binding was ridiculous and they would try to unbind the women's feet, the girls' feet, and they would do a lot of harm so that the woman couldn't walk. And they didn't realize that at the time. Um, I find foot binding absolutely horrendous. And I think they outlawed it, well, I thought it was 1928, but I think it was I, it was another year. Um, and I bet there are places where they still do it. Men are supposed to think it, it is a sign of beauty for women to have little tiny feet that they can't walk on. Um, the whole... Well, in the, the very first thing in the book is a quote from Confucius, and I don't remember the quote. It just says uh, that women are not worth anything. They can't do anything. They're just kind of in the way, and I think that's what Confucius felt about women. Um, well, I, I won't continue, but I just loved it. I just, well, the I'm more I glad. read. I'm glad to hear it. Lynn, would you like to go next? Uh, yes. Um, I consider myself the curmudgeon of the group when it comes to historical fiction. But I have to thank you, David, for bringing this to my this book to my attention. Oh, well, glad to hear it. It wasn't that I was involved in the book, or I felt I was in the book. I felt that I was an observer of the book, and I don't know where to start. I love the phrasing that she used, and um. I uh, think of the example of she's talking about the woman's menstrual cycle and she had a certain phrase for that and it was just so clever uh, and there's all through the book it's like that she's coming up with these phrases um, and, and you know I got an appreciation um, and I just realized this by just just tonight, listening to the discussion that um, women throughout the vast majority of history have been the underlings. Mm 
and suppressed, um, except for the um, in certain cultures. And uh, I've this pointed out to me more than anything else I've ever read how women, you know, because you're a woman, you know, you're not an equal to to the superior man. And it is so ridiculous. Um, I just can't say enough about it, the book, um, for the foot binding that was very eye-opening to me um, and the details that she went into. And I was like, um, then she started talking about eunuchs. And I'm going, mm -hmm. oh gosh, she's not going to start describing how to make a eunuch, is she? <laughs> I said, no, she didn't go Good. that way. And I guess I can thank her for that. Exactly. Um, uh, I'll let somebody else talk. All right, but LaDon. This, would, is, yeah, yeah. this book, I think I'll keep it on my iPad for a while and maybe nice. jump around in it. And, and uh, Well, good. And um, thank, but thank you, David. Sure thing, LaDon, would you? Yes, like the others. I found this book rather a tough book to read. Very interesting, however. The part of binding the girl's feet just got to me every time that we came to that or they talked about that is just so horrendous that it wrecks on my mind. And then it's such, such a male-dominated and centric world that it was hard to look back at it. I thought it was interesting the way she thought she could uh, diagnose people's mal problems by listening, feeling their pulses, just feeling their pulses. Of course, you might be able to find a little bit about heart problems that way, but she thought she could in those days, they thought that uh, they could diagnose all kinds of diseases. And I don't know, just by touching a thing. Very interesting, though, that the doctor could stand behind the screen, hold on to the end of a handkerchief while the woman held on to the other end of the handkerchief. And he also could diagnose her problems by listening to that. I thought that uh, I know that it was had to keep in mind that there was since the fourteen hundreds and eighties or something like that, six hundred years ago. I was wondering if six hundred years from now they might look back at us and think Good point. Oh, how terrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's those are good points. I guess we'd better go. Don, do you have something to add? And then I'll get to Kathy and Brad, and I think that will be everybody. Betsy Grenovich, don't get it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll get to you. I'll get to Betsy after Don. Don, okay. do you have something you'd like to add? Hmm. What's his face? Don's mute. He might have got he's, muted. He's, yeah. he's muted again. Yep. Whoops. Yep. yep. So. While he's do, figuring out how to unmute Betsy, would you like to go ahead? And then Don I'm can come after. Were, well, if Brad and Kathy were before me, let them go. Oh, okay. Sure thing. Brad and Kathy. Well, I'll go. Um, I listened to Kathy rave about this book for a long time. Um, even before, you know, it was uh, came up for the book club. Uh, and then I was a little slow in getting going at it. It didn't even start until last week. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I thought the book club was next week. Can't, I can't read a calendar. But yeah. uh, all that said, foot binding, I thought it was barbaric. Yeah. Uh, and I thought the whole purpose of it was to hobble win, hobble win women, you know, the way they kept in the compound. When your feet are bound, you can't really walk away. So uh, I, I just found 
they, like I said, my word for it was barbaric and it kind of made my skin crawl the more they talk about it. Um, I'm only about a third of the way through the book. I'll probably keep reading it. It's, it's, it's interesting. Certainly after hearing the interview and all the research she did on it, it's certainly a time and a culture that I knew, you know, very, very little about. So, um, but um, it, it, it's very interesting, but uh, not exactly my thing, but uh, it's still, it, it's still interesting. It did, was easy to read. Um, and it, you know, pretty much held my interest while I was reading it. So uh, I'm glad you assigned it. Uh, it's something I probably wouldn't have, have picked up otherwise. So that's well, what I, Kathy has to say. I did want to try to pick something that that was a different. I do try to keep track of the different books I've brought up here. And I try to pick things of different periods and different times so that we have a vast variety and several different subgenres of historic fiction, like historic mystery. And then the one time we did the one, the what if, what if George Washington had been captured by the British? So we've done different things. And okay, Kathy, what would you like to add? Well, Lisa C. is one of my favorite authors, which I think I said last month, and I've probably read all her books. And um, when I saw this one um, uh, at Half Price Books, you know, sitting out, I said, oh, I have to grab it. And I couldn't put it down, but that's because I just love her style of writing. And what I like about her books is she takes women in oppressive situations and um, they learn to become stronger or whatever, you know, goes through their life and how the oppressive things that happened in their childhood affect them. But um, I got interested in foot binding. I knew a lot about it because I read a lot of fiction um, or auto, uh, autobiographies of people in China and or I have over the last, I don't know, 40 years. But um, I checked out a book from the Dallas Public Library, a scholarly book on foot binding. Ouch. And it had pictures of what the foot looked like unbound. And it was basically the, the toe pointed down in the heel. Um, so it's kind of like a U. They made it a U. That ankle was the top uh the round part of the u sort of and and this is gross but i'll tell you you wonder why guys found this um sexy uh the men saw that the middle the crack between the two parts of the foot that were kind of broken and bent and they saw it as the woman's female part and they oh, found it very sexy it oh, was God. like it's disgusting, but no, in, in this good. book, I was like, oh, that explains it. So, mm -hmm. and the guys would sometimes take their, uh, whatever, the woman's little booty sock off, you know, her silk thing that she wore in bed, and um, they got off to it. I'll just say it that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> God, it's just awful and just a very oppressive thing, but... Um, Women were, it was outlawed in China and maybe like Jody said in 28 or so, something like that. But then Mao came along and he needed workers. And, um, you know, a woman with broken feet can't be a good worker. So he especially, any woman that um, had been uh, bound or whatever you say by whenever now took over in the late 40s i mean that was like a real negative thing so it went from being um that this sexual pleasure thing and the status symbol to then eventually you know they were oppressed by Mao for having these kind of feet they were looked at as bourgeois as the russians said and all this it was um it's a really freaky kind of thing but it is outlawed in china um and I don't know anywhere else in the world they do it, but they do other things to women. <laughs> it, is, it, it is interesting, different standards of beauty. I mean, 
in Scarlett O'Hara's day, women were squeezed to death in corsets. Mm-hmm. Some true. African tribes had women whose, I think their lips are were stretched. The Inca of Peru did things to people's ears to pull their earlobes really down. Yes. The Maya tied boards around their infants' heads so they could give them a sort of pinheaded look and strung a blue bead between their eyes to make them cross-eyed, which they thought was gorgeous. And of course, European women slathered themselves with white lead-based makeup, Queen Elizabeth I being an example, and it would pit your skin. So Mm. I I guess you can say that various cultures have done various things for beauty. None of them are very fun, you know, proving Mm. that beauty hurts. There are some cultures that uh, do some things to little girls' genitals. That, yeah, that's um, grotesque. Yeah, that's <laughs> grotesque. You know, and it still goes on. Actually, unbelievable. It even goes on a little bit in the United States. Um, grotesque. Yes. So yeah, this stuff. Uh, but you know, they did things to the eunuchs. I have read about that. That's too. grotesque too. <laughs> I won't tell you guys what they did, but it was pretty. Mm-hmm. It. Edward Rutherford writes about that in his novel, China, if anybody is that interested. I guess we'd better go to Betsy and then Don, and then I think we'll be done. And then we'll end with Don, who can also tell us what January's book is. So go ahead, Betsy. David. David, I wanted, it's Tony. I wanted to say one more thing. Yes. Should I say it now? Go ahead. Okay. Yes, go Um, ahead. Lisa C., her, her mother was Carolyn C. And Carolyn C. was a writer, too, and wrote about China. Oh. And other things. And I was shocked when I found out that they were mother and daughter, and both of them were extraordinary writers. And uh, just to let people know that her mother was a fantastic author, too. Have you read her on Bookshare or on Bard? Oh, it's been a long time, probably on Bard. It was a very okay. long time ago. I'll have to look into that. Um, it makes you wonder sometimes if there's some genetic to talent. You know, the mother's a famous writer, the daughter mm-hmm. is as well. Sometimes I think there is a little bit genetics in things sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked up Lisa C. just before we came in on um wikipedia she is 68 i think she'll be 69 in february i didn't i had not realized how old she was i was curious and she, they said she's one eighth chinese i thought she had more right. chinese ethnicity than that but that's what they said so she's not as ethnically chinese as i thought but she's very culturally chinese uh, and she's chinese. naturally redheaded so oh, wow. it's very interesting yeah she's that one is. eighth she's so one eighth is- that is really interesting. I guess we would let Betsy go, and then we'll have Don finish us off. Go ahead. I enjoyed the book a lot. I did a different focus than the rest of you, though, did. Oh. I knew about the binding ahead, but I went a totally different direction. What's that? When I started reading more of it, I went to the point of what can I learn from this? What did what did Euxian do that I could learn from? And the thing was perseverance and she being willing to did. stand up. For what she believed she mm-hmm. she stood up even though she was told not to do it she went behind her mother-in-law's back and still did it one thing i also focused on was mei ling their friendship was so steadfast and no matter what happened between them they still stayed for each other even though mei ling felt that that yuxian was against her because she was in a different class yuxian showed her that it wasn't that wasn't the reason that they weren't apart they were still friends that's what i took from it was yes. not the bad stuff, but what can I apply to my life from this book? Because it That's was good. based on reality. And it yeah. also was, you know, I'm a Christian and Christians have to stand up in other countries for their life. And yet they're willing to stand up. And that's what I applied it to was, am I willing to stand up for what I believe no matter the cost of it? And that's that was my focus. That's an excellent point. I'm glad you brought that to our attention to to give us a different viewpoint. That's what the group is good for. Thank you. And let's go. Don can tell us what he thought, and then he can give us January's book. You know, reading this book, tonight's book was very interesting. I got only halfway through, but it was like reading Burlesque book in high school. The Good Earth, it was just uh, changing a different culture. But um, now, uh, 
let's go to the uh, this next month's book, which is the American uh, uh, Prometheus. American Prometheus, the triumph and tragedy of Robert J. Oppenheimer. And, and David, I want to make another comment when we're done with that, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin From the Book Jacket American Prometheus is the first full-scale biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer, father of the atomic bomb, the brilliant, charismatic physicist who led the effort to capture the awesome fire of the sun for his country in time of war. Immediately after Hiroshima, he became the most famous scientist of his generation, one of the iconic figures of the 20th century, the embodiment of modern man confronting the consequences of scientific progress. He was the author of a radical proposal to place international controls over atomic materials, an idea that is still relevant today. He opposed the development of the hydrogen bomb and criticized the Air Force's plans to fight an infinitely dangerous nuclear war. In the now almost forgotten hysteria of the early 1950s, his ideas were anathema to powerful advocates of a massive nuclear buildup. And in response, Atomic Energy Commission Chairman Louis Straws, Superbomb Advocate Edward Teller, and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover worked behind the scenes to have a hearing board find that Oppenheimer could not be trusted with America's nuclear secrets. American Prometheus sets forth Oppenheimer's life and times in revealing and unprecedented detail. Exhaustively researched, it is based on thousands of records and letters gathered from archives in America and abroad, on massive FBI files, and on close to a hundred interviews with Oppenheimer's friends, relatives, and colleagues. We follow him from his earliest education at the turn of the 20th century at New York City's Ethical Culture School, through personal crises at Harvard and Cambridge universities, then to Germany, where he studied quantum physics with the world's most accomplished theorists, and to Berkeley, California, where he established, during the 1930s, the leading American school of theoretical physics, and where he became deeply involved with social justice causes and their advocates, many of whom were communists. Then to Los Alamos, New Mexico, where he transformed a bleak mesa into the world's most potent nuclear weapons laboratory, and where he himself was transformed. And finally, to the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, which he directed from 1947 to 1966. American Prometheus is a rich evocation of America at mid-century, a new and compelling portrait of a brilliant, ambitious, complex, and flawed man profoundly connected to its major events, the Depression, World War II, and the Cold War. It is at once biography and history, and essential to our understanding of our recent past and of our choices for the future. American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin, DB61087. Copyright 2005 by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. Read by Stephen Carpenter. DB61087. This book contains 699 pages. Approximate reading time, 27 hours, 35 minutes. Oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> Do I get a response on that? Yeah, you, you're, you're going to get a response on that. 27 hours, baby, man. John, are you going to do it half? We're going to do you're the first do half. half. Okay. Oh, excuse me. <gasps> So where where do we stop with the with the chapter, book? Chapter twenty four. Chapter uh, twenty four. Okay. Or part three. Finish part three, and you're okay. I had a little trouble. I was going to have it with the Trinity, uh, or Hiroshima or Nagasaki explosions. That he was uh, very famous after that for until the uh, FBI kind of got after him. So. Anyway, if you get through chapter 24 or part three, uh, uh, I think we'll cover the, uh, the the triumph part of the, the this is kind of a Greek tragedy. And the, the gods come to punish him with the, the 
the uh, the rest of it. He, I see he didn't lose his position at Princeton, though, despite uh, their efforts. Okay, excellent. And I think I, Alan wanted to say something before I, we I, sign I, off. I, yeah, I was just going to say, I have to give her credit. Moon water sounds a whole lot better than monthly menstrual cycle. I think I'm I'm quoting that right. Yeah, Chinese does have that poetic thing. And child palace sounds a whole heck of a lot better than uterus. So yeah, I thought I thought I thought some of the terminology. Yeah, they could be poetic. Yeah, yeah, poetic. I mean, and I'm sorry. I think women's feet are beautiful. So I can't imagine how they ever got started doing that other than what Kathy said, maybe. But that's still, that's just, it's just messed up. It's It's messed up. It's messed up. Yeah. It was designed to oppress and hobble them. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, that makes sense. You can't walk away. And it became the myth that this was beautiful and Uh, appealing and all. And so the uh, myth grows down the uh, centuries that they were doing this. And, me a break. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty disgusting. When I until yeah. I saw the pictures and read that that scholarly book about it, I was just like, I knew it was bad, but anyway. Yeah, that's horrible. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great discussion, David. Good job, as always. That was excellent. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful book. Yep. <laughs> In yeah. my opinion. All right. Thank everybody. you, David. Okay. Sure thing. Thank you. Thank you. Glad you Good. all liked. Good crowd. We had 12 here. That's good. Excellent. Okay. Okay. Good deal. All right. Bye-bye. Catch y'all next time. See you next month. I'm going to end the room.